0: A billion-dollar deal for five South Florida hospitals brings a new operator to the region. Steward Healthcare is the largest physician-owned hospital network in the country and bought several facilities in Miami-Dade and Broward counties.
1: We will make money from operations day one on them. I'm not worried about that. Every penny they make, I'm going to reinvest.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. Today on The Sunshine Economy, hear from the leaders of one of the newest companies entering the South Florida healthcare market, Steward Healthcare. The company may be new to South Florida, but South Florida is not new for the company founder.
1: We have so many roots for us that it was personal.
0: Stewart Healthcare on the expansion in Florida, the hospital business, and the cost of care. Ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. A billion-dollar business deal and family ties has brought the newest player to South Florida's healthcare industry. Stewart Healthcare is the largest physician-owned health network in the country. This summer, it bought five hospitals in Miami-Dade and Broward Counties for $1.1 billion. And it brought founder, chairman, and CEO Dr. Ralph De La Torre to a familiar place. We have
1: so many roots for us that it was personal it's home for many of us it's where i go when i visit my mom my brother so to us it was very personal and it is very personal
0: de la torre's father was a cardiologist his mom was a nurse they fled cuba in 1960 for florida and now de la torre leads the largest doctor owned for-profit hospital network in the nation He has put together Stewart Health through a series of deals over the past 11 years with the help of a private equity investor. Stewart has expanded its hospital and medical center footprint from its traditional base in Massachusetts now to 10 states and two countries. Its newest region is South Florida. It also is its first big deal since De La Torre orchestrated a buyout from his private equity partner. We'll have more on all of that in a few moments. In June, Steward struck a deal with Tenant Healthcare to buy that company's five hospitals in Miami-Dade and Broward Counties. By August, the $1.1 billion deal closed. Palmetto General, North Shore Medical Center, Coral Gables Hospital, Hialeah Hospital, and Florida Medical Center are now under new ownership, giving Steward Health its first presence in the South Florida healthcare market.
2: These facilities have a number of things that make them incredibly appealing to us at Steward.
0: This is Dr. Sanjay Shetty. He is president of Steward's North America division.
2: First off, we absolutely love the South Florida market. We know that it's a market that is positioned for continued growth. So just from a pure demographics, it makes a lot of sense. Healthcare is a growth industry.
0: Steward tried to get into the healthcare industry here 10 years ago. In 2011, the company offered to buy Jackson Health System for $1.1 billion. Coincidentally, the same amount of money it would buy the tenant hospitals for a decade later. Now, back at that time, Jackson was in financial trouble, and it would have represented a hybrid business model considering Jackson's status as the safety net public hospital in Miami-Dade, and Steward is a for-profit company. Three months after launching the effort, it ended with no deal. Steward is much larger today, and it's making a big play for South Florida patients.
1: We will make money from operations day one on them. I'm not worried about that.
0: This is founder and CEO Dr. Ralph De La Torre again.
1: I pretty much predict that we're not going to get a penny out of South Florida for a few years because every penny they make, I'm going to reinvest.
0: Since completing the deal to come to South Florida, Steward struck a deal to sell all of its hospitals in Utah to HCA Healthcare. No financial deals have been disclosed, but in a news release, De La Torre says the sale freed up money for Steward to invest in its accountable care model. On its corporate website, Steward actually has a section titled Business Model. The accountable care model brings together doctors, hospitals, and other health care providers to work together on patient care with the goal of lowering the overall cost of care through better coordination and reducing unnecessary services.
2: I think that the main difference with Steward's approach, and you see this in in the other markets that we've been in, is that we do take that more holistic approach to serving the healthcare needs of the community.
0: This is Steward North America President Dr. Sanjay Shetty again.
2: We really believe strongly in the medical group, as well as in what I described as Steward Healthcare Network, our ACO, which manages populations of patients. So what we really, I believe, can bring to the market is both within our four walls, and four walls defined broadly as our medical group, our ACO and our hospitals. We believe that we can continue to contribute to the growth of that value-based model within South Florida. But what's amazing about South Florida is that there are a number of other very large entities that already are well down that path. So South Florida in particular is exciting because the idea of value-based care is not new. um, And we think we as a hospital uh, system and as an integrated healthcare system can be an excellent partner To existing entities as well as continuing to drive that conversation forward uh, in the interest of delivering sustainable costs within healthcare.
0: South Florida is an expensive place for healthcare, almost $17,000 per Medicare patient in Dade County. That's 40% higher than the statewide average. It's a little bit less in Broward and Palm Beach counties. Widening the difference between what a big player like Medicare pays and the actual cost of the care can lead to savings and profits Here's De La Torre.
1: Margin can be captured by, by, by the provider, but it's important to note that it is captured by the providers, all the physicians, all the everybody in the whole system, because we don't have the whole system. We, we integrate with other doctors and other, and other entities to do this, um, so it's captured by the system. But it's also captured by the patients because, you know, you, you, at the end of the day, you're lowering costs.
0: The Accountable Care effort is just one part of Steward's business model. Another key part is what De La Torre calls asset light. That means Steward does not own its hospital buildings or the land. It rents them. That's one of the strategies for how it pays for expansion. It bought its five South Florida hospitals for $1.1 billion and quickly turned around and sold the real estate to another company for $900 million. So the difference... $200 million? That came out of Steward's operations. North America President Dr. Sanjay Shetty says this arrangement keeps Steward focused on operations.
2: The facilities are the true bricks and mortar in in the the very literal sense, right? Uh, That is not where the expertise or the capital should be deployed. Uh, Our interest is in operating the facilities, uh, in ensuring that we can uh, invest in the physicians, and the IT, in, in the equipment, and the programs, and the clinical. Uh, and so for us, we really are a part of the communities that we serve. Uh, whether or not we happen to own the building or not, I think most people wouldn't even know if, if it was sort of just out there on a piece of paper. I mean, you know, the, the base assumption is, no, they're the hospital. Uh, the hospital is the people. It is not the bricks and mortar.
0: While this structure is not exclusive nor new for Steward, What is new now is the company no longer is majority-owned by a private equity investor. Cerberus Capital Management is based in New York, and it specializes in buying companies in financial trouble. That's how it wound up owning Steward for its first decade. De La Torre teamed up with the firm to buy its first half-dozen hospitals in Massachusetts. Cerberus transferred its ownership stake of Steward a year before the company entered the South Florida hospital market. De La Torre led a group of Steward's doctors to take over that ownership. Now, the ownership group still owes $350 million in future payments to its landlord in addition to its usual rent. In its decade of ownership, the private equity firm quadrupled its initial investment. Now, the company is in the hands of doctors as owners. De La Torre does not think that structure represents a conflict of interest, though.
1: Because it's so big that no one decision can change anything. We're too big to that. So, you're, you're driven to. The greater good and also you know it's 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 how do i say this we're careful about who owns shares we all have a common vision and a common mission we're in this for a reason we all left practice me and the ones that that left practice to start steward years ago because we had a vision that was different than the way it was going getting done and That's who we are. And the beauty of it is without a sponsor, without public reporting, we can actually have a 20 year timeline. And and that's kind of how we think about things. We think about things in a 15, 20 year timeline.
0: You are listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Today, we're featuring interviews with the bosses at Steward Healthcare. It just bought five South Florida hospitals. I'm Tom Hudson. You can email our program at sunshineeconomy at WLRNnews.org. Again, our email address, we want to hear from you. Sunshine Economy at WLRN Each Monday, we examine the stories and hear the voices of people shaping South Florida's economy. Be sure to listen to the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. here on WLRN to hear stories and voices from around the globe. Still to come on this program the push for price transparency in healthcare. Patients
1: do not look at those kind of cost data, they just don't. What will drive them is what it costs them. If there's a copay or a deductible, that drives them.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. Welcome back to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Since January, hospitals in the United States have been required to post prices for patients to see. Healthcare prices vary widely. The federal law requires hospitals to publish the prices for 300 common services they've negotiated with insurance companies and post the cash prices they charge for that same care. Few are fulfilling the rule fully, according to a study by PatientsRightsAdvocate.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit group supporting healthcare care price transparency. Six months after the rule took effect, it found only one in 20 hospitals were fully following the rule. For some hospitals, supplying the data can be hard to find for patients and difficult to read. For example, the required price list from Steward Healthcare's North Shore Medical Center in Dade County runs almost 4,500 lines of an Excel spreadsheet. There are dozens of prices for x-rays. X-ray of the collarbone, x-ray of the shoulder blade, x-ray of the elbow, two views, x-ray of the elbow, three views, x-ray of the pelvis, two views, x-ray of the femur, one view, x-ray of the heel, two views, and so on. Seward Health is the newest player in the South Florida hospital industry. It bought five hospitals for 1.1 billion dollars this summer from Tenant Healthcare, expanding to the region for the first time. I spoke with Stewart founder, chairman, and CEO Dr. Ralph DeLatorre about the cost of care and price transparency. There are new federal rules that have been put in place in healthcare that require health insurance plans to disclose rates that they pay to hospitals beginning next year. Do you support this transparency for the insurance companies to make transparent their negotiated rates?
1: I do, but I think that it's going to be overly cumbersome and complicated. What I thought that providers should do is provide what what I call the weighted average payer rate. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter what Blue Cross pays you if you have one Blue Cross patient in the hospital. It matters if you're trying to take care of a population, and most hospitals take care of a population that surrounds them. It matters what you on average get paid for a hip surgery or a shoulder surgery or a pneumonia. And that's a factor of your different commercial rates, what percent is commercial, what percent of different payers, Medicare, Medicaid. So it would be very easy, I believe, for providers to come up with a list of their top 30 reimbursable codes and just what is your weighted average payer rate for those codes? For example, if you're talking about a hospital that's 60%, let's say 60% Medicare, 30% Medicaid, I don't think anybody would have a problem if they have a very high commercial rate because the commercial rate is subtending those patients.
0: It's going to subsidize the government paying rates.
1: And I wouldn't have a problem with that. But if you have a hospital that's 90% 90% commercial, then you know what, their, their, their rate shouldn't be high. And their weighted average pay rate is still gonna be far higher than, than somebody in that you know former position. So that's why I think that's a more relevant number. So, so let's take a step back. A hospital subtends a population, okay? And the, let's just assume, which is a big assumption, but let's just say that the healthcare expenditure within that population is going to be, i.e. how much they spend per capita is going to somehow drive the wellness and the general health of that population in a given area. So if you have an area that's far more commercial and they get paid, doctors and hospitals within that area get paid far more than an area that's Medicare or Medicaid, then by difference, you're going to get a lot more dollars being spent in those populations than you do in the others. So you have to kind of start working into a weighted average payer rate and understanding what the general population on a per capita basis gets within a certain area.
0: For any individual patient though, does that average patient rate allow a meaningful decision when it comes to deciding where to get their healthcare services based upon quality and on what their cost will be?
1: Not necessarily. We're talking about things that drive the, you know, the, 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 the regulatory scheme, things that drive the transparency that drives regulations, transparency that drives Medicare, Medicaid for its planning of pandemics. We're thinking about things that drive employers. The, the honest truth is that patients do not look at those kind of cost data.
0: They just don't. But it hasn't been available, to be fair, correct?
1: But I, and, and I could be wrong. I, I think, I think what will drive them is what it costs them. If there's a copay or a deductible, that drives them. But what the insurance which they get to do work, what the work pays, I don't think is going to influence where they go. I could think they're going to go with, where, where it's convenient and where they think they get great care because it doesn't cost them anymore. If, you, if that transfers into deductibles and copays, then they'll start making those kind of decisions.
0: And so this transparency effort that has been underway for a good number of years and has taken some significant leaps forward in recent years because of federal regulatory action, is that addressing that premium cost? It's not the direct out-of-pocket costs that the patient is paying for through copays and deductibles or uncovered expenses, but rather that monthly or bi-weekly deduction that's coming in the paycheck if they're getting employer-based insurance.
1: I think it starts informing the decision. I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll trickle down to the patient, but I think it will inform the decision of employers and the larger organizations potentially that are putting together a population from an insurance perspective, because then they'll say, well, it'll be out there. Well, you know, we should refocus our patient delivery here because when we look at the quality metrics, this other entity just isn't worth the increased price. Um, And I think that, it's, it's interesting, and it's a little difficult, too, because what I think will bear out is that the providers that have the higher rates in the commercial world are ones whose populations are subtended by the larger commercial population. So if you have a hospital where 90% of it's commercial and you're, you know, let's just pick whatever, commercial plan A, and and this, this payer has a huge presence in your community, then they need to have you in the network. It gives you leverage and clout because you have a huge number of their patients coming to your hospital. So you get to have negotiating leverage to get more and higher rates. If you're a hospital that doesn't have that big commercial population, you don't have the leverage. So I think that what we'll find is that much of the opposite of what you would want to see if you were trying to do a fairness around weighted average payer rate, what you're going to find is a divergence that the higher commercial providers are going to end up getting the higher rates.
0: Why hasn't there been more transparency in healthcare pricing as the market has grown so substantially to be such a large part of the national economy as well as the local economy?
1: Because it's very complicated. It is very complicated. What, what a hospital gets reimbursed... You know, when you start putting in or a doctor gets reimbursed, when you start putting in co and you start putting in deductibles and then you put in clawbacks and you put in quality metrics and you realize that there is no one fits all. Right. So there's you know, there might be one that's a, a Blue Cross managed care plan. There might be one that's a Blue Cross PPO plan. There might be one that's a Blue Cross managed Medicare and much Medicare. So when you start adding all those levels of complexity, it's very complicated.
0: So, how do you cut through that complexity and aim toward more transparency, which can aim toward better consumer decisions for healthcare and a more efficient healthcare spend ultimately, and hopefully a healthier population?
1: I think where we end up having to go is that transparency will drive changes in our healthcare system. And changes in our healthcare system will then drive efficiency and better overall societal care. So um, I think most of us are not expecting that transparency is going to drive an individual dis- an individual's decision to go to here or there. It's like that. I think what will happen is that it will create a market pressure and a better understanding Number one will drive simplification. Okay, we got to simplify this. It's got to be easier. And then there'll be transparency, simplification. Then there'll be the understanding that we can't leave segments of society without care or with this hugely differential spend between the rich and the poor. So we need to figure out how to equilibrate this. Well, in order to equilibrate this, we need to modify the system. I think it'll be iterative over time that we end up changing the system. It all begins with an understanding of the foundation.
0: Could transparency be a competitive advantage? in an otherwise opaque marketplace?
1: Um, look, I would love to say yes. Um, and because I, I, we, we, the way that we're modeled is we're, we're, we're not a high rate. We don't get high rates. We don't want high rates. We, we're, we do a lot of Medicare, Medicaid. But the reality is I think that transparency is not going to drive the individual consumer. I think transparency is going to drive the market. And that's what we're hoping
0: to do. There was a separate federal rule that requires hospitals... Uh, to disclose prices on a variety of services requiring these hospitals that accept Medicare to make public negotiated rates with insurance companies for supplies, services, uh, facility fees, and other types of costs, or be fined $300 a day. How have steward health hospitals followed these regulatory transparency rules? So
1: we're, we're putting it all together, and we believe in it. I think the important thing that, that you said though, is that um, it's the rates that we get that's important. What a hospital charges is an irrelevancy. What we have on our charge master is irrelevant. Everything's a negotiated rate with the insurance company and everything between the negotiated rate and what is on our charge master is a contractual allowance. So in many times we bought hospitals whose charge masters were absurd. Um, But we didn't care because that's not what we get paid. We ignored it.
0: You mean high or low?
1: High, usually high. Um, And I think the problem with what a hospital charges, quote unquote, is that it's largely irrelevant.
0: Because it's not what the hospital gets paid, ultimately. It's not
1: what the hospital gets paid. It's not what's negotiated. Medicare doesn't pay that. Medicaid doesn't pay that. And not a single commercial insurer in the planet pays that.
0: And that's why this rule that's in place is for negotiated rates to be disclosed. Yes.
1: Yes, and I, and I think that, that that needs to also dovetail with your payer mix. You can't just view that in isolation. You have to understand your payer mix. I mean, let's be honest. If, let's take Jackson, who serves a you know, fundamentally underserved population. If they had high commercial rates, none of us would care. I mean, it, it's just supplementing the others, and it's a very small population. But if you take another hospital that is all commercial, and they have very high rates, we're like, well, why, why is that? That's the next evolution of this question.
0: Speaking with doctor Ralph De La Torre, founder and CEO of Stewart Healthcare, it recently entered the South Florida healthcare market with its purchase of five hospitals in Miami Dade and Broward counties. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Please be sure to check out our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Leave a review and hit subscribe. Also listen during the nine AM hour Tuesday through Friday for the BBC News Hour. Still to come on this program, how Steward Health plans on competing in the South Florida healthcare market.
2: You know, our original model incorporated the idea that we would make significant investments, but it's in the tens of millions of dollars of investment that will be coming.
0: We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. I'm Tom Hudson. Today we're hearing from the two top executives at Steward Healthcare. The company is the newest player in the South Florida healthcare market. It operates hospitals in 10 states and two countries. It bought five hospitals this summer in South Florida, expanding into the region for the first time. Dr. Sanjay Shetty is responsible for the bulk of that business. He's president of Steward Healthcare North America. We spoke with Shetty about the company's expansion into South Florida. Do you anticipate any changes in terms of insurance partners at these five hospitals with the ownership change from tenant to steward?
2: We are very lucky to be in a position to be excellent partners with most of the payers that already serve South Florida. Um, so our goal is to continue to build on a terrific foundation, to grow that partnership going forward. Um, And and I believe a lot, a number of them have been very excited about our entry into South Florida, adding five more hospitals to what's already a three hospital footprint in Florida. We have three hospitals up on the Space Coast of Florida. Um, And so we've already gotten to know some of the key uh, players in the market. Uh, This only allows us to deepen the partnership as we look to being not just a sort of vendor to those insurance companies, but a true partner.
0: Does the purchase of the hospitals trigger any necessary renegotiated rates for the payers the insurance companies that had contracts with the facilities when they were under tenant ownership
2: no nothing changes imminently uh, with respect to rate structures uh, with any of the peers
0: stewart enters this market in south florida that is really dominated by a handful of big hospital uh, medical providers there's the baptist group Uh, Mount Sinai Medical Center based in Miami Beach, but has spread across South Florida. HCA has a presence here, the large publicly traded hospital operator, and of course, large public hospitals, Jackson in Miami, Broward Memorial in South Broward, Broward North, and then of course, the the public facility in Palm Beach as well. How do you compete against those that have a, a larger presence and a longer presence in this market?
2: I think as we look forward to sort of our future in in South Florida, um, first and foremost, our goal is to serve the communities that we're in. Uh, I believe that there's a huge opportunity to uh, collaborate with community partners, uh, with businesses, with municipalities, uh, in order to ensure that these facilities stay really strong. That really has served us well in every market that we've entered across the country.
0: What does that collaboration look like, Doctor? Is it a competition on price and service quality?
2: It's a number of things. First, it's really understanding what the community needs. It's ensuring that the community understands the terrific quality of care that's being delivered at our facilities. Um, sometimes it's it's dealing with reputations that are decades old uh, and, and turning the tide on that and making them recognize that what's under the hood or inside the four walls is, has really materially changed uh, and that the quality infrastructure that we're deploying at these facilities is going to serve really important benefits in the macro, but also on the day-to-day and the experience of every single patient. Um, So for us, that's going to be the way that we're going to differentiate ourselves as well as collaboration with other key healthcare partners. Um, We believe that all of the entities that you mentioned and others could be terrific collaborators as we look to provide better care across the entire continuum uh, for our patients.
0: In the marketplace of health services in South Florida, how do you anticipate, Stuart, differentiating itself in a market that traditionally has a higher cost than average nationally. Uh, it has a growing population, so demand continues to increase. And we've seen new efforts to try to increase the supply of healthcare providers by dropping, for instance, the certificate of need in Florida that previously required any hospital group to prove to state regulators that there would be a market before they opened it up.
2: The main thing that we're going to be doing is continuing first to invest in the facilities, right? We have to invest in the facilities, in equipment, in programs uh, that really serve the needs of the local community. And I think will will in and of of themselves be an incredible draw as people realize the amazing things that are happening at these five hospitals. It also will require continued investment in our physician infrastructure and that accountable care infrastructure infrastructure. Luckily, a lot of the baseline foundational work is already done uh, on the back of over 10 years of experience in accountable care, but making it and tailoring it for the South Florida market will be a key, important step. Uh, and we also look again to that, that ability to collaborate with world-class doctors. I think our model at Steward as a physician-led company is we, we're building the healthcare system that we would want to go work for.
0: What are some of those programs that you anticipate, Steward, to invest in? In the local community with these five hospitals in South Florida to differentiate them in the marketplace for healthcare consumers.
2: Right. So I expect to see that there will be a number of investments first in the facilities with themselves, right? In order to address the needs of, of a patient, both with respect to you know the basic cosmetics, but even more importantly, trying to make sure that they are equipped with all of the equipment that our providers, our physicians need to provide the latest in high quality care across every specialty. So Those programs are going to run the gamut uh, across all specialties. Uh, For example, uh, we are very eager to grow, continue to take advantage of the intrinsic strength of these facilities in cardiovascular services, in neurologic services, including stroke care, our incredibly strong emergency rooms uh, that we have across all five facilities that see a huge variety of care. Uh, We also have done, uh, I think, terrific things, um, and we will continue to do so, to really take advantage of the fact that now we have these five facilities that can work even closer together, right? So how can we think about services being provided across the five hospitals to say, where is orthopedics best located? Where is cardiovascular best located? That's not just one, it could be multiple facilities within the five systems. But we do wanna make sure that as we're providing those services that every one of our physicians can feel like they're in a location that has the best equipment, the best trained staff, Uh, the best possible uh, environment for them to provide the best care.
0: From a financial perspective, it's called CapEx, capital spending. All right, you're smiling to that phrase. I'm sure it's one that's uttered uh, pretty frequently in the office in Dallas from which you're speaking with us here today. So what kind of CapEx, capital spending expectations do you have for these five hospitals in South Florida?
2: You know, our original model incorporated the idea that we would make significant investments. I think the the, the amount is still under assessment as we really sort of looked under the hood uh, in order to figure out where we would prioritize things. Um, but but it's in the tens of millions of dollars of investment that will be coming uh, imminently in order to jumpstart a number of the programs that we'd like to do. But that's just the very beginning, right? And that, to be honest, takes advantage of hundreds of millions of dollars of investment that Stuart has made In our underlying infrastructure and foundation from an IT perspective, from our proactive analytics, our ability to sort of operate the hospitals, you know, we're also going to take advantage of years of experience in the healthcare space uh, to deploy a number of items even more quickly uh, without needing a heavy capital uh, investment up front.
0: Speaking with Dr. Sanjay Shetty, President of North America for Steward Healthcare. The company recently bought five hospitals in Miami-Dade and Broward counties for just over $1 billion. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Let us know your view about healthcare and prices and quality. Send us a message on Twitter or Instagram. We're at WLRN. Catch the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. here on WLRN. Still to come on this program reshaping the business of healthcare.
2: How can we manage efficiently to the volume that we have, right? It's probably the single most important thing when it comes to managing the hospital.
0: This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Stewart Healthcare is the newest hospital operator in South Florida. It bought five hospitals from Tenant Healthcare for about $1 billion this summer, including North Shore Medical Center, Coral Gables Hospital, and Palmetto General. Stewart got its start 11 years ago with the help of a private equity investment firm that buys companies in financial trouble. That private equity investor made its money back and more by selling the real estate of hospitals it operated with Stewart And a year ago, it transferred ownership of the company to a group of doctors led by CEO Dr. Ralph De La Torre. He led Stewart when it was owned by that private equity firm and continues leading the company's expansion into South Florida. There have been some concerns about inadequate staffing at Stewart Hospitals in Massachusetts. There was a Bloomberg report that talked about Stewart delaying vendor payments. How do you respond to some of these concerns that have been communicated?
1: So I think that, look, the staffing issue is a, is a problem at every hospital in the United States right now. I think that anybody who, doesn't, who tells you they have no staffing issue just, is just not being honest. There is an enormous nursing shortage right now. You got to think of it this way. You know, If you start with the premise that the shortage is what it is and you're trying to get nurses, but you can't, then you can either shut down services or push it a little harder. So sometimes maybe we push it a little harder because we don't want to shut down services as others have. You know, I think that we're, we're we have posted positions. We're actively trying to recruit. And, you know, I, if you know a place I can get nurses, man, I just let me know. I'll be I'll be there today.
0: Well, pushing a little harder sometimes runs up against regulators and and labor unions.
1: Yeah, it is. But they're the same to you and beg you to keep an expand number of beds because there are COVID patients in the parking lots.
0: And the concerns about delaying vendor payments?
1: Oh, you know, I think a lot of that there was um exist in the past. I think everybody delayed vendor payments around COVID just to make sure that they had cash on hand in case, you know, really, really, really went south. You gotta remember, you know, at the beginning, at the end of, you know, at the end of 19 and in 2020, we had no idea what we were gonna be hit with. Watching what was coming in Europe and it was I mean, think about the pictures that we all saw of bodies being piled outside of buildings. We were terrified.
0: Stewart is expanding and has expanded in North America considerably from its historic base in Massachusetts. It's expanded into Texas and obviously expanded here in South Florida with the purchase of the five hospitals. You've also got operations internationally in Malta and Colombia. Why expand outside the United States?
1: The Malta and Columbia is a sister company. It's not this company. It's in no way tied financially. It doesn't even have the same ownership. We share some common ownership, but it doesn't even have the same ownership structure. It's completely a different company. You know, I happen to be on on both sides of the aisle. And I think that the good thing about the international, it's a not only diversification, but also, you know, you're helping all populations. You know, I'm Cuban. Um, one of my executives is Panamanian. You know, I have another Cuban. I have another Puerto Rican. You know, I have a German. So we're, we're in a very eclectic mix of, of people. And, we, you know, yes, our mission is in America, but we also kind of feel compelled to help people in other parts of the world, given the knowledge that we have. We also learn a lot. Okay, we learn a lot. We were in a great position in Massachusetts because of our European operations in Malta and also because our, our CEO there is German had great contacts in Germany and saw how they did things. So we learn a lot there. Um, you know, we learn a lot in Colombia. I mean, you know, Colombia, in many ways, in my opinion, is behind, but in many ways is ahead of the United States socially in the way that they've addressed the structure of um, the healthcare finances. So I, I think that um, you know we enjoy it, we learn a lot, but you do need to understand that their sister companies are not the same company.
0: Dr. Ralph De La Torre heads up Stewart Healthcare. The company's North American business is led by Dr. Sanjay Shetty. He oversaw the company's operations in the southern U.S. during the pandemic. How has the business of healthcare been affected by the pandemic?
2: We made the very proactive determination that we were going to invest heavily uh, in expanding our facilities, in bringing forward technology, in staff, uh, and best in class care uh, to all of the communities that we serve. Uh, So that was probably the single most important thing that happened during the pandemic. I think it also highlighted for the community at large how important our frontline workers really are. From a healthcare perspective, I think also uh, allowed us to understand sort of ways in which healthcare is going to continue to change and that patients are changing their behaviors. With respect to healthcare, that telemedicine is likely here to stay uh, as long as there is a mechanism for that to be reimbursed uh, in all settings of care. But patients are becoming increasingly comfortable with the technology that's been out there for quite a while.
0: When you talk about the reimbursement for telemedicine, that is where the insurance industry intersects, of course, with the patient and the provider, the provider being steward health in this case. Is the insurance industry, in your estimation, behind the game, so to speak, behind the consumer in providing that kind of reimbursement at the levels and the prices that you need to help support the infrastructure that you've invested in?
2: I I think it's an evolving marketplace for what, what the payers are going to be comfortable with in the long run. I think a lot of things changed in the course of the pandemic almost became an opportunity for everyone to relax the rules that existed before in order to see what was necessary and what was needed. Uh, where that evolves to, I think time will tell. But I do believe in, the, in overall telehealth would become part of the armamentarium for us to take care of patients.
0: The hospital footprint that you have in multiple states, including growing here in South Florida, the urgent care centers that Stewart has, skilled nursing facilities, behavioral health services. How has the impact from the pandemic Uh, differed across these business segments.
2: During the, the peak of the pandemic, late spring into summer, there was a lot of hesitancy from patients to seek care anywhere. So we saw that in our outpatient offices, in our emergency rooms, where only the most severe cases would come into the emergency room, but a whole other tranche of care that we would typically be delivering just wasn't coming.
0: It would be correct to assume that it was the elective surgery Part of the business at hospitals that was probably most directly impacted in terms of the drop off in business because of the pandemic,
2: uh, in in different places and at different times, it definitely dipped. In a lot of ways, there was a bounce back after, uh, because people came back to seek that care, knowing that uh, that it was necessary. You know, I think we also struggled, I, and our physicians did too, with the idea of what was an elective surgery. I think there's a pretty broad continuum for a elderly patient who during the pandemic, absolutely wanted to get outside and walk around the block for peace of mind and and exercise, that knee replacement was absolutely crucial. Uh, So it didn't feel elective to them, although it might have been elective by certain classifications. We really did make an effort to ensure that while we were expanding capacity for COVID, that we kept our doors open for as much as we possibly could, uh, while also respecting the fact that we had to have capacity to serve uh, the needs of our COVID patients when, when necessary.
0: Nobody budgeted for a pandemic in 2020, but here it is. Now, moving into 2021, the pandemic is a reality and begins to show up in the budgeting process. Give us a sense of how you approach managing that cost structure in a place like South Florida, which has a higher than usual cost structure when it comes to healthcare services.
2: For us, as we look at the business as a whole, uh, the, the most important pieces that we're always trying to think about is how can we manage efficiently to the volume that we have, right? It's uh, probably the single most important thing when it comes to managing the hospital uh, is, is that ability to be flexible. Stewart has always taken a pretty innovative approach with respect to how we manage our variable costs uh, with changes in demand. Uh, we have built within the company, predictive analytics that help us understand what's the likely number of patients that are going to be in, not just within a hospital, but on any particular floor at any moment in time, so that we can build our staffing, our equipment, and our supply and medical costs to tie to what the expected volume will be. That has allowed us, again, to manage our cost structure in a way that is not just reactive, but in a lot of ways, very proactive and predictive. Miami, in particular, looks very similar to some of our other markets from a cost of living. We have operations in Boston, in Houston, in San Antonio. Um, So we're very used to that. And we're also very used to very diverse communities um, and and having to manage uh, within communities that speak different languages, that have different cultural needs.
0: What are the predictive modeling analytics that you have instituted at Stewart telling you about the short term and the medium term, even just through the end of this calendar year, for instance, in terms of the demand for healthcare services.
2: For right now, I, our expectation is that the demand is going to persist. We're not at the end of this current surge of the pandemic. You know, we expect that the, the current push on volume will persist.
0: Driven by the pandemic?
2: Yeah, driven partially by the pandemic and driven by other underlying needs of a growing population in a place like Miami.
0: Speaking with Dr. Sanjay Shetty, president of Steward Healthcare North America, the company bought five hospitals in South Florida this summer. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Each Monday, we examine the stories and hear the voices of people shaping South Florida's economy. Be sure to listen for the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. to hear voices and stories from around the globe. Still to come on our program, the economy and the epidemiology of COVID-19 in South Florida.
3: This is a very uh, hospitality and tourism-sensitive stock, despite shortages of help. They're doing very well.
4: What I've seen on the ground is more attention to vaccination in different communities.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. The COVID-19 pandemic has made the obvious connection between public health and the economy even more obvious. The economy and a lot of people still have not regained all that was lost when the virus started spreading, and the virus still is with us. Just as the germ keeps circulating in the economy, the economy is integrating the germ. We're learning how to live and work with COVID-19. This is why we're checking in most weeks here on the program with someone studying the regional economy and an epidemiologist to hear how the virus is influencing the economy. Both are seeing some encouraging signs. For the epidemiologist, it's the downtrend beginning in new COVID-19 infections.
4: You get to a certain point where Delta has spread to a significant group of people who are susceptible.
0: Dr. Zinzi Bailey is with the University of Miami
4: still spreading, but not at the same rate and an increasing rate, you expect every epidemic curve must come down at some point.
0: That has been the case. The weekly positivity rate in Miami-Dade County dropped to below 7% last week. It's lowest since July. It's about 10% in Broward and Palm Beach counties, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control. And then there's the economy.
3: We had an earnings surprise big time on the upside for Darden.
0: This is Howard Frank. He watches the economy as director of FIU's Metropolitan Center. Darden is a bellwether in the hospitality industry because it owns a list of chain restaurants.
3: Olive Garden and Longhorn and uh, Capitol Grill and Smoky Bones and...
0: The company is based in Orlando. Its quarterly profits were up more than 50% from a year ago. It increased its profit outlook for the rest of this fiscal year, and it sent the stock to a record high.
3: Yeah, a big restaurant chain can survive. It'll do things to acquire help, even if that means paying more money.
0: In March, Darden announced it was raising its minimum wage to $10 an hour and adding another dollar in each of the next two years. That may add costs to the business, but there are other ways companies are looking to make up for it.
3: I went a few weeks ago to an Olive Garden. It looks to me like they've probably cut back on their menu, but they've adjusted and they're doing well. All right. So that's that's an upside.
0: The epidemiologist, Dr. Zinzi Bailey, also has some anecdotal evidence that's giving her optimism about battling back the virus.
4: I've been having some more interactions with friends, family, friends of the family, and being able to interact with some folks who are already vaccinated, older folks who are excited to try to get their booster shots, uh, sharing information across different lines and church groups and you know WhatsApp groups around uh, booster shots and where to go.
0: Now, as a scientist, she's careful not to rely just on her personal experience but to begin looking for the data to support any continued increase in vaccinations or the interest in boosters among those eligible. She went to the Purple Church with her mom. The name comes from the color of the church building. It is an African Methodist Episcopal church in Richmond Heights.
4: Richmond Heights is a historically black neighborhood. And, you know, has seen its its share of uh, disinvestment um, and different experiences through the years. But um, I think with that, a strong community at this Purple Church.
0: Churches and community groups have been key in spreading messages about how to get vaccinated and allowing those who may be reluctant to hear from people in those communities. More than 80 percent of those eligible to be vaccinated in Miami-Dade County have gotten the shots. It's the highest in the state. It's 75% in the Keys, 70% in Broward, 65% in Palm Beach County.
4: We still have high levels of transmission. Um, And what we also know is that those folks who live in neighborhoods where you have high unemployment, high need, uh, lower levels of education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, historically disinvested by public and private sector, in those neighborhoods, we also have the highest levels of service workers. They're the ones who have been going to work in person and continue to go to work in person. So we have to put those things together.
0: Next week on the program, we'll talk about the economic and epidemiological myths of the pandemic. How do unemployment benefits affect the supply of workers? How does requiring a vaccine by an employer affect the willingness of someone to get a dose? Email us your questions, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. It's Sunshine Economy at WLRNnews.org. You can find a podcast of this program and all of our programs. Search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on social media as well. We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions about the economy and the pandemic? Find us and send us your thoughts at WLRN. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to listen Tuesdays through Fridays during the 9 a.m. hour on WLRN for the BBC News Hour. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.